Well, good morning. Turn into your copy of God's Word with me to John chapter 13. We're going to be looking at the last three verses of this chapter and the first six of the next chapter. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about a question that I want to proffer to us this morning. What is a telltale sign? A, not the, but A, telltale sign of a true disciple of Christ. Not what is a mature disciple, but a genuine one. What is the most basic or one of the most basic identifiers of Christ's disciples? We should be thinking through those questions this morning because that's what we're going to be looking at in the text that we have before us. The telltale sign, a telltale sign of Christ's disciple. To be sure, there's lots of ways um, that disciples of Christ are flawed. We can all attest to that. We can certainly read that in the scriptures. Disciples of Christ can be immature. We can be inconsistent. We can be uninformed. We can have information that we don't yet connect or understand. No disciple of his is perfect. We're all a work in progress, and we strive to be perfect, but we know we will never get there this side of Jordan. But on a most rudimentary level, what is something, what is one thing that's true about all authentic disciples of Christ? One thing that we can look at to be sure of that is true of all authentic disciples of Christ is that they desire to be with Jesus. They desire to be with him. His real disciples have to be around him. They yearn to be in his presence. They long to hear his voice and sit at his feet. He says his sheep hear his voice and they run to follow. And you you picture back in chapter 12, Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. She's just got to hear. She's got to be with him. To authentic disciples, we know that we're all a work in progress, but there is marks of, that we can see of genuine conversion. And one mark that we're looking at this morning is that true disciples want to be with Jesus. They've got to be with him. They want to be with him. They'll scrap, they'll strive and fight, work to be with him. They can't be kept from being with him. And Jesus says this relationship is symbiotic. We'll see in a few chapters in John 15, 4 through 5, Jesus says these famous words, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You're with me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, whoever is with me and I in him, he it is that bear much, bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The heartbeat of our text this morning, these verses, the end of chapter 13 and the introduction to chapter 14, here's the heartbeat of it. The disciples are asking Jesus, where are you going and how do we get there? Where are you going, Jesus, and how do we get there? Though the disciples are going to show a fair degree in our text this morning of immaturity, they're going to overestimate their courage, they're going to display forgetfulness, they're going to manifest mediocre passions and undue fear, but their heart's desire is going to be clear in all of this. We want to be with you, Jesus. Please show us how. That's what they're going to see this morning. Like, like young infants, if you've ever been a father, you've felt this pain that all she wants is mama. 
she doesn't give a rip about you. you you're, you're, you're chopped liver. She wants mama. And what happens the first time when mama leaves? Mama can't leave. What will happen? The whole world will crash down if mama ever leaves for a little infant. Now, here's what's happening for the disciples. They're like an infant being left with grandma for the first time. Lots of screaming, lots of confusion, lots of world-crashing paranoia. But they're going to see and they're going to be instructed in the ways that Christ intends for his disciples to function in this way. Now, in a sheer stroke of brilliance, I have alliterated everything in this whole message. Here's the, here's the title. Disciples distress over Jesus' departure and destination. And here's the first point. Desire and self-deception. They're all D's. I mean, this is, this is powerful today. You get ready. The first three verses in desire and self-deception, you're going to see desire and a degree of deception that Peter has for himself in these three verses. Verse 36, Peter says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Jesus' profound new commandment to love other Christians the way that I have loved you, Peter doesn't even register that. That's not even clicking in his brain. He doesn't concern himself with that at all. He's several verses beyond that saying, you said you were going to leave. Well, where are you going? That's what he's concerned with. Now, now we have to consider, we have to we're show a lot of grace to the disciples this morning, as we often should, because they are like us and we are like them. But their heads are spinning. Judas just left the room just, just minutes before, after Jesus said he was going to be betrayed, and Judas is gone. We don't really know why he's gone. Jesus has switched from concern to urgency in his teaching now. He says he's leaving them, and you can't follow me. And he commands other people to, or he commands them, the disciples, to love each other as the chief witness of the church in the watching world. And they can't get past his departure. They're still on point one. We, you're leaving? See, we only know Jesus as physically absent. They only knew Jesus as physically present. So we can show a fair degree of grace in, in their confusion or, or, uh, or uh, fear. Their world is shifting. All that they know is completely changing, understandable, to say the least. Yet at the same time, Jesus has said these same words before. We don't have time to go back throughout the Gospel of John, but he has said many times, I'm going to return to my Father. From where I came, then I will return. He said those phrases and similar ones like that many times, and they've heard it. So this certainly displays here their weakness, a weakness that we can relate to. We can relate to this same kind of weakness. How often has Christ told us in vain through his word exactly what we needed to hear to navigate life and particular situations faithfully, and yet when that situation comes up, we act as if we've never heard any of it. We've, we've missed all of it. That happens to us all the time. When we need to put it into practice, we have no idea what to do, as if we've never heard it before. This is where the disciples are right now. We can sympathize with it. This is so true for all of us. If you've ever taught anybody anything, you've been there. When we lived out at a camp, a Christian camp, and I'd have to teach college kids how to drive these, these speed boats, these ski nautiques, uh, ski and wakeboard boats, you, you start to think, why are we letting an 18-year-old drive an $80,000 boat? 
after just a couple of days of training. This is ridiculous. But here's what they always messed up. I would say, here's, you got to remember this, guys. Boats have no brakes. They don't have any brakes. So you got to come into the dock real slow, real slow. And they would come in so hot and then throw it in reverse and the waves go everywhere. People are flying out of the boat. Kids are crying on the shore. And we're doing all these kinds of things. We're like, okay. It got to the point to where I would just be like, if we're 100 yards out, and I'm like, you're too fast, turn around and go back. You're too fast, turn around. Slow, slow, slow. It's, it, girls would get it quick, but the, the, the male mind hears the word slow and thinks kind of fast. And, they, and just can't come in slow, and then they just crash into the dock, and they're smashing these boats. And you just, I've told you, I told you on shore, I told you in land, I told you when you sat down in the seat, just like I told him and her and her and her, when you sat down in the seat, go slow, and they blow it when it comes down. Their hands are on the wheel, the disciples' hands are on the wheel, and Jesus is like, I, I've, I've mentioned this before, and they're like, where are you going? They don't get it, they can't get past it. And Peter, as the mouthpiece, he has to ask. Jesus, and Jesus kindly answers, well, you're going to come, but you can't come now where I'm going. That's a normal answer. Here's what it should have prompted in the minds of the believers in the room, the faithful in the room. They should have been like, oh, okay, well, how long will we be apart, Jesus? How do we plan for this? Or how will you teach us while you're gone? We still want to be taught. We still want to be instructed. Or, or can we still communicate with you? in your physical absence is that possible or can you tell us more about where you'll be this is interesting how will we arrive where you are or or what should we be doing while you're gone to ensure that we end up where you are a lot of those would be really common sense answer or questions to follow up to what jesus said but peter doesn't ask any of those questions at all he's going to show that he's very self-deceived in the next verse peter said to him lord why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. At the very least, before we get into this verse, at the very least, this passage should teach us that our desires as Christians, even though they may be good, they may be noble, may not always line up with the will of God. Peter wants to follow Jesus now, and that's not intrinsically sinful at all. He should want to be with Jesus, but it's not God's will for him now. So we must subject our even most noble desires in our Christian faith in following Christ to the will of God. That includes marriage, missions, ministry. That includes having children. That includes what job. It's all of these things that are good for us to desire. We still have to subject them to the will of God because we don't know all that God knows. Just like Peter doesn't know all that Jesus knows right here. Here's the twofold irony of Peter's statement here. Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Actually, Peter, it's going to be me, Jesus, laying down my life for you in a couple of hours. And then secondly, you are going to lay down your life for me several years from now, and it's going to be by crucifixion that you're going to do it. Peter, according to church tradition, is crucified upside down because he thought it was so blasphemous for him to die in the same way as his Savior. Twofold irony that Peter doesn't yet see in this verse. But he's saying, and this is the heart coming across, I should be able to follow you right now because I'm willing to die for you. See, the problem is that his heart is, is divided in some sense. Peter believes that he's worthy enough to test out of temporarily having to be separated physically from Jesus. Like when you clep out of tests in college, 
I don't have to go through that class because I already know all this stuff because I'm smart enough so I can just take this test and not have to do it. Guys would do that in seminary and we'd all be like, I think you should go to the class based on having talked to you a little bit. Like, I think you need to go. It's going to be good. And Peter's trying to clep out, not have to deal with this. And Jesus is saying everybody's going to have to deal with. His heart is clear, though. He wants to be with Jesus, the problem that is muddled with his pride. What is his reason for it? Jesus, you should let me follow you now because I am so noble, I'm so devoted, I'm so committed that I'll die for you. So let me skip that now. I'm willing to die for you, so make me not have to do that. That's what Peter's asking for. Based on who he is, Jesus should treat him special. He wants to be with Jesus desperately, good and right desire. But the basis for his acceptance is what? His own merit, his own faithfulness, his good works. Because of who I am and what I'm willing to do and surely have seen in me, Jesus, you should give me special treatment. You should let me miss this. Now, can you be truly saved and still think that you had something to do with it? This is where Peter is a little bit right now. Can you? Can you be truly saved and still think that you had something to do with it? I think you can. Tommy Nelson down the road at Denton Bible Church, he says it like this. When you get saved, at first, you're a Pelagian. The Pelagian heresy is that I had enough grace in myself, enough wisdom in myself, and I chose God all on my own. It was all on me. I did it. I looked at the options and chose him. And then you live a little bit of a Christian life and you realize, I'm not so great, actually. I, uh... <laughs> I keep struggling with these same sins over and over again. So, you know what? Maybe when I got saved, I just kind of cooperated. I mean, I'm, I, I, co I mean, I'm not all the way bad, but I'm, I'm pretty bad. So I just kind of I, I synergized with, with God. So you become an Arminian at that point. And then eventually you end up at the end of your Christian life or after several years of just getting beat down by your own sin. And you go, I am so depraved. I am so decrepit. There's no way I did anything to participate in this at all. And you end up a Calvinist and then you die in the truth. That's, that's how it happens. It's like, my, it's like my son saying, this is where Peter is. It's like my son saying, uh, after we, we, I played in a disc golf tournament and I won a credible 30-foot putt at the end. You guys can watch it on ESPN. So years ago, he was about three or four. And it was blazing hot and halfway through, less than halfway through, he wants to sit in a stroller as a big kid. And all, I mean, he kicks the baby out of the stroller. And then we get the end and we get this gold disc. It's, it was just spray painted gold, but it looked fancy to a three-year-old. And he comes home and says, Mom, I won. Here, I did it. And she was like, oh, well, did you throw them up? Well, I mean, I threw, I threw a couple. So he started out as a Pelagian when he came home. He's like, well, I, I helped Dad a little bit. And then he ends up an Arminian. And then he goes, well, actually, you know what? Dad did the whole thing. And I sat in the stroller and didn't do anything. Ended up a Calvinist. But this is Peter's self-deception. How will Jesus respond to it? Peter, here's what Peter's about to experience. Go back to your memorization of Psalm 23. He's about to experience the comfort of the shepherd's rod and staff. That's what he's about to experience. A loving rebuke, a painful blessing. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times he directly challenges peter's claim to devotion you think you'll die for me you won't in fact in just a few hours you're going to deny you even know me to a little girl 
You think that you have this devotion, but you don't. Peter would have been wise to look back at his memory work of Proverbs 27, 1 through 2. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Peter was praising himself. I can do this. You should let me not have to do this. We'd all be wise to learn from Peter's example right here before we move too far and before we beat up on Peter too easily because we should all have a sober evaluation of ourselves. This was the most difficult section of our text for me to get through this week. That to say, I will lay down my life for you. We all say that. We all have this hero concept of the, our church history heroes or the leaders that we have in our lives now that seem to be have, having stood strong for the faith and we say I'm going to do that too I'm going to lay down my life for you and when the heat gets a little bit hot what do we do fold when the bullets switch from rubber to lead what do we do hide we have the tendency Peter has grossly overestimated his courage and his devotion and we do the same all the time we would be wise to soberly evaluate ourselves because every time we sin we prove that we are exactly like peter there is something i want more than jesus that's what sin is every time i want something else besides jesus we do that all the time sin is saying i want something more than jesus we should acknowledge our frailty and our cowardice, and we should pray for help. And this is how the great men and women of the faith have always done. Look at Philippians. Here's Paul. Philippians 1, 19 through 20, the apostle. As a, writing out from prison, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Meaning, what's going on here? I'm in jail. I know you're praying for me. Continue to pray for me. And here's his reason in verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, pray for me. Because when it comes down to life or death, pray that I don't chicken out. Pray that I don't. I want to expect, and my hope is that I won't. But pray for me that I won't. Here's an even more detailed account from a dearly departed saint named Nehemiah who works for a pagan Babylonian king and he hears about the destruction that's ravaged Jerusalem and he wants to go back. He's Jewish. He wants to go back to build the wall. He prays this prayer of confession. And at the end of his prayer, in verse 11 of Nehemiah 1, he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, meaning the king. I'm about to go ask the king to let me go back to Jerusalem to build it back up and bring a bunch of people with me. Grant me success. He's praying for mercy. And in the mouth, in the, or here in verse 2 of chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, he was the cupbearer to the king. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and being sad in the presence of the king, he could, he could take it as you disapprove of me and have him immediately executed. So this is a fearful thing, but he couldn't hide it off his face. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? There's nothing but sadness of the heart. 
Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Do you see Nehemiah pleading for mercy to stand strong? Pleading for mercy that when the moment comes, I won't be intimidated by this powerful man, that I won't, I won't cave to my flesh, that I'll actually be courageous in obedience and in faithfulness. And so when he's afraid, what does he do? He prays. When the guy asks him the question, in the moment, he prays immediately for his own weakness. Keep me from being weak. Lord God, it's our model of faithful devotion that Peter could have followed as well, but we shouldn't put the full weight on Peter alone. Because look at the other accounts of this same conversation in Matthew 26, 31 through 35. And Jesus said to them, you will all, all disciples in this room, will fall away because, because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep and the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So, so often, as we see in New Testament narratives in the Gospels, Peter's just speaking for everybody else what they're unwilling to say. He's going on record for the heartbeat of everybody else in the room. All the disciples, they share the same self-deception. Jesus has a special lesson for Peter that he's going to deal with because those who Christ uses mightily have to be humbled mightily. But nevertheless, this is what they're all dealing with. And we're not going to see this deal with Peter come up again at all until chapter 18 of John. The other gospels, the synoptic gospels, haven't happened that same chapter. But John lets us linger longer in the upper room. We're going to sit with him. He records so much of Jesus' words that after this rebuke to Peter, he then turns to the disciples to counsel them, to shepherd them. This is the destination detailed in verses one through three, Jesus is gonna explain, I know you guys are struggling. He says, let not your hearts be troubled in verse one. Believe in God, believe also in me. He jumps from the rebuke of Peter to the comfort of all. Let not your hearts be troubled. I know this is troubling, but don't be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. The disciples just keep getting heavy news. Now, because they just got told now, Peter's going to deny you. There's a betrayer, and now there's a denier in the room. And we're kind of still confused about who the betrayer is. We know who the denier is. And, and, and you're leaving still in the midst of all this? Clearly, Jesus, we're not put together enough for you. You can't go. But he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be troubled by this. He keeps carefully shepherding them. And what is his solution? He doesn't just say, don't be troubled, moving on. What does he tell them to do instead? Believe in God, believe also in me. It, this is a notoriously difficult uh, sentence to translate from Greek because it could say, you believe in God, therefore believe also in me. Or it could say, you are believing God, so keep believing me. 
all of the emphasis should be taken that from, all, from all of the ways it can be translated because it is difficult. But we can surmise, or we can, we can distill down what his solution to fear and anxiety is, is this. Lean into faith in the triune God of the Bible. Turn your eyes to him and off of self and situation. The psalmist said in Psalm 42, 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Somebody, the sons of Asaph are writing this psalm, and they're, they're looking at themselves, they're counseling themselves. Why are you looking at my soul? Why is it cast down? Why are you in turmoil? And then what's the solution? Hope in God. Hope in God. That's where you take your anxiety, your fear, and your turmoil. For I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. The object of your focus when fear and anxiety comes upon you will either accelerate or decelerate that fear and anxiety. The object of your focus. It will either pour gas or water on that fire. Belief and hope in God who is Trinity it smothers that fire. When we turn our focus upon him, it crushes fear. It, focusing on anything else when we have anxiety and fear is diesel on a fire. The only thing that smothers it is to hope in God, to believe in God, and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the strongest of Christians, the most faithful of saints, oh, we all have bitter cups to drink in this life. That's true for all of us. And the world is a veil of tears for all of Christ's saints at some point. J.C. Ryle said, faith in the Lord Jesus is the only sure medicine for troubled hearts. Faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the sure medicine. In Isaiah 26, 3 through 4, the prophet says it like this. You keep him. God, I'm talking to you. This is what you do, and I know it to be true. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. That's the one you keep in peace, the one whose mind won't drift off of you to anything else, won't look at anything else, won't focus at anything else. Think of Peter on the waves. He's looking at Christ and not the waves. That's who you keep in perfect peace. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Jesus right now is being the wonderful counselor. You know that name that he has, wonderful counselor. Is he averting the disciples' eyes off of their situation and bringing it upon himself? He's just doing what we've been commanded to do in Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above and not on things below. He's doing that with them and for them. And here, here's how he's going to continue it. Where I'm going is to my father's house. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. I think the NASB translates it better. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. See, now they know where he's going and what he's doing when he gets there. Part of the question is being answered. He's going to the presence of the Father. He's going to the Father's house, making it possible for them to come too. Jesus is going to prepare a place to bring many sons to glory, like the hymn says. Romans 8, 29, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his, son, of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's going to heaven so that we can all go too. If he doesn't go first, then none of us get to come. 
Jesus is saying in this verse, if heavenly glory awaited me only, I would have told you. I would have told you. I would have told you there's no room for anyone there but me in heaven, but that's not the case at all. I'm actually going to make more room for you. And the way that, that this is supposed to be pictured, it, this heavenly perception is not supposed to be a neighborhood with houses. So we think of mansions because that's how the King James translated it, and it got it from this, the, the Latin word for mansions. And when we think mansion, what we think of is separate buildings along the same street. It's not really that at all. It's really there's one mansion, and Jesus is going and building on more presidential suites for everybody that he's loved and set his favor upon from the foundation of the world. He's going and building presidential suites for all of us in the same house, all together. The head must be eternally united with his body, and heaven is the inheritance of all the believing. This should help settle their fears, right? That's where I'm going. I'm going to the Father's house, and I'm preparing a place for you. That should help them. And it's not their first contact with this idea. He said this, that he came from the Father, and he will return from whence he came. Now it's more clear now. Now they're getting it. He's speaking very directly and very plainly to them. And he goes on to say in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. I'm going to be, you're going to be where I am, more reassurance. Since I am making a place for you, you better believe that I'm going to fill that place with you. Jesus called himself Jacob's ladder back in chapter 1. You remember that? The dream that Jacob has in Genesis of angels ascending and descending from heaven to earth on this ladder. And then when he's calling the disciples to himself, he says this in John 1, 51. He said to him, truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending to the Son of Man. I'm the bridge that gets you to glory. Never forget that. J.C. Ryle also said heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. We have been prepared and he is preparing our eternal abode. And it also, verse 3, has eschatological inferences. I will come again and take you to myself. I will come again. I'm not going to be gone forever. That we as Christians throughout all of generations have looked at that promise and said, He is going to return. We do that every time we take the Lord's Supper. He is going to return. Gather all of His beloved to Himself in finality. The, the, the comforting word Jesus gives, don't worry. You will be with me. I will, be sh I will make sure of it. I'm leaving now, but you will be with me. You will be with me. I'm, I'm going to return. When we were kids, my, my siblings and I, my dad, when he'd take us to the movies to, to give mom a break, I, I remember this happening at least a handful of times. We'd go in and get good seats, and we'd be sitting there in the, in the one-screen theater. Kids, I don't know if you've never heard of that before. They used to be just one screen. And you had to go at one time to watch that one movie. And we'd be in there. There's nowhere else for anybody to go. There's nothing else that could come in. And we'd sit there, and my dad would say, hey, y'all hang tight. I'm just going to go grab popcorn. And as the oldest, you feel this burden. Dad's not here. Everybody's looking at me. And the other two siblings are just asleep, and they don't care because I'm bearing all of the weight of the pressure of this whole situation. And constantly looking back behind my seat, when is dad going to come? Just staring at that door. When is he going to come back? When is he going to come back? When is he going to? He's got to come back. And then he was gone for eight hours at a time, it seemed. And then he would finally come back. And, just be, and he always came back. The disciples are having to sit in the chair and wait for dad to come back. 
our desire to be with Christ, though, that he's making us know is reciprocal. What does he say in verse 3? I will take you to where? Myself. Myself. Here's something that maybe we don't think about enough. Jesus wants to be with us. Our desire to be with him, the disciples' desire to be with him, is reciprocated. I'm going to bring you to myself. I'm not just a bus driver bringing you and then dropping you off in the better place of the only two options that exist. I'm bringing you to me. I want you with me. That reciprocated love. He is not just merely letting us in his orbit out of pity. He isn't just a one-way street. Yeah, I know you certainly want to be with me, and I'm kind of kind of just put up with it and allow it. No, I want to be with you. Can we believe that? I mean, you've got to imagine the electricity or go back if you're married to that time when you found out that your significant other had feelings for you too. Your head just blew off. I cannot believe it that she feels the same way. Now, you, you multiply that times in an, in an infinite number that our love for Christ, because of what we know he's pulled us out of, he reciprocates to us. I want you with me, and I can do something about it, and I am doing something about it, he tells his disciples in present time. This is how the commentator Hendrickson described it. So wonderful is Christ's love for his own that he is not satisfied with the idea of merely bringing them to heaven. He must needs take them into his own embrace. Not enough just for you to be geographically where I am. I want you with me. I want to be with you. I mean, the deep love of Christ in this passage. Now, just consider the context. We look at this. This is a popular funeral text, as it should be. But when we put it in the context, who is he telling this to? Peter, who's going to deny that he even knows him. Three times in the middle of the night. The disciples who at the first sign of real physical conflict are just going to run from him. And he's telling them, I love you so much. I'm going to bring you to, I'm making rooms for you. And I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to come get you and make sure that you're with me. And he knows, he knows that he knows you are all going to scatter from me peter you're going to deny me the rest of you guys you think that you love me you think that you're devoted to me but you're really not and you're going to be forcefully shown that but nevertheless i'm still preparing a house for you nevertheless i still want you if we need assurance of salvation we must go here at least at some point because we're not denying jesus at the moment of his crucifixion We're not running from Jesus at the moment he's being handed over and betrayed. What could we do that could make Jesus say, I'm not going to keep you. I'm not going to come back and get you. It can't be worse than what these brothers are about to do to him. His love surpasses our deepest sin. He promises them their spot in heaven just hours before they all abandon him. We can believe that same promise and we should and then lastly desire but disconcerted thomas is going to chime in in verse four jesus continues and changes the subject a little bit and he says and you know the way to where i am going you do know jesus can honestly say that 
here's the unbelievably great news, guys. I'm going somewhere, and now you know I'm going to the Father's house, but guess what? You know how to get there. And Jesus can honestly say that because no less than 19 times publicly, at least in the Gospel of John, he has said out loud where they can all hear, this is how you have eternal life. They know it. They've heard it at least 19 times. So he can honestly say, you know the way to get there because you've heard those things and you know me. He can say that to them in all clarity and honesty. They know he's the Messiah. They know he's the covenant fulfillment. And yet here comes Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? We don't know. I mean, you said that we know, and you just told us where you're going, but we don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. I mean, again, we look at Thomas. Every time he's recorded saying something, it's never very good. But we're him, too. He's still hung up on where Jesus is going. The previous statement about the, the, the joys of heaven and the personal connectivity to Christ and him bringing them into the Father's presence, in, into the Father's home, dwelling, he's just like, we don't know where you're going. He's like, I just told you, and I told you what I'm doing there. But he doesn't, he, he's beyond, he missed it. But let, yet look at Thomas's heart before we throw stones. Where does he want to be? He wants to be with Jesus. He's like, Jesus, I, don't, I still don't get it. Don't go until we know how to get there. He wants to be with Jesus. He may be immature, but his heart's desire to be with Christ is manifesting as a real disciple. It seems, he seems to be stuck on this physical reality. Jesus, give us turn-by-turn turn directions to the destination. Don't, don't, please don't be vague. And he hasn't been vague, but that's what they're begging for. He missed the overarching spiritual reality, which we do all the time you've come to different texts in the scriptures read them and then moved on and then you come back years later and you're like man have i misunderstood that text that's why i write in the margins in my bibles with pencil so that i can go oh that was stupid and nobody will know that for the rest of my life or when i'm dead my kids won't think that <laughs> but i don't write in pen in my bibles anymore because i come back and realize like thomas i missed the spiritual reality of the whole thing and that's where he is he's disconcerted He's afraid, and he still desires to be with Jesus. But he's in this position of where we often are, that we have all of the knowledge. We have, like he, Thomas has heard all of it, and he just got told us as explicitly as possible. We have all the knowledge. It's all truly present, but it's like Lego pieces that aren't put together. I have all of the pieces to build the model, but none of them are put together, or not, um, not enough of them are put together for me to see the picture of it. That's where Thomas is, that all the disciples are, again, speaking for the group. Jesus is faithful, though, to walk us through brick by brick. This is how you connect it, and this is what it's going to look like. Because he says in John 14, 6, one of the most famous verses, most iconic verses we have in all of Christianity, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A plain answer to a misunderstanding. Isn't that how Jesus, we've seen him do it so many times in the Gospel of John? The spiritual thing is, well, what do you mean about water? It's like, I am the water. Well, what do you mean about the shepherd? I am the shepherd. He's explaining it more clearly. This is Jesus' sixth I am statement in the Gospel of John. He says, Thomas, you said you don't know where I'm going, nor the way to get there, but you do. I'm going to the Father, and I'm the only way to get to him, and you know me. You know me, Thomas. Jesus is patiently shepherding 
his slowly maturing disciples. And this verse, we could have just spent the whole morning on this verse. But as we can build towards the conclusion, Jesus doesn't merely show the way. He is the way. Jesus doesn't merely tell the truth. He is the truth. Jesus doesn't merely model the life. He is the life. Sproul says this statement is an elliptical form so that Jesus was saying, I am the way because I am the truth and because I am the life. I am the way to the Father because I am the true manifestation or revelation of the Father. I am the way to the Father because I alone have the power of eternal life. That's what Jesus is offering his, his disciples, comfort and clarity. Comfort and clarity. What could be more comforting to men who have given up everything, who've abandoned their professions and their families and their, their religious background to follow him when he says, I'm the only way. I'm the only life. I'm the only truth. You've made the right decision. And then also what could be more clear than the, exclu and the exclusivity of the gospel? For the English majors in the room, what does Jesus say? Does he say, I am a way? I am a truth, a life? No, we have a definite article. The way, the truth, the life, exclusive to all other ways, all other truths, and all other offerings of life. He excludes all of them. There will be no one received by the Father who circumvented Jesus. This is, this is why in Bunyan's famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, there's two guys who jump over the wall to get onto the pathway that leads to the celestial city, which is heaven. And Christians sees them jump over, and their names are formalist and hypocrisy. We've seen that in churches, right? Somebody who's just here in the formality of it, the nominal of it. Or the hypocrite. I come and act like a Christian here, but I live like Satan out in the world. And, and Bunyan pictures them as having jumped over the wall, not having gone through the wicked gate at the beginning of the path, which is conversion to Christ. And they don't make it to the end of the pathway. He also shows someone named Ignorance who somehow ends up after death at the gates of the celestial city only to be turned away because he didn't enter at the wicked gate tried to circumvent Jesus and get to heaven. And you cannot do that, according to Jesus. This is the verse that gets us hated in a pluralistic, tolerant society. Because what is Jesus saying? All other religions are illegitimate. He's saying, he's making clear, faith in anything else condemns you. He's saying that on no uncertain terms, every other religious belief system is a lie and any other savior but Jesus brings death. That's what he's saying. Jesus declares himself to be the singular hope for sinners. There are no other options. There's no blending of it. There's no combinations that you can make. There's life nowhere else, truth nowhere else, and heaven nowhere else. Acts 4.12, the apostles say, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is making that perfectly clear to his disciples at their most vulnerable moment. I am the way. I, I, I'm not just, I don't guide you to the way. I am the way. 
I don't point you in the right direction. I'm not sage wisdom to tell you how to live. I am the way. I'm the road. I'm, I, I'm the entrance. Come through me. In Calvin's commentary, he says, The whole may be summed up thus. If any man turn aside from Christ, he will do nothing but go astray. If any man do not rest on him, he will feed elsewhere on nothing but wind and vanity. If any man not satisfied with Christ alone wishes to go farther, he will find death instead of life. See, this is why we preach an exclusive gospel, because Jesus did. Not because we hate others, but because we love them. What's the context here of Jesus' speaking? Comforting the disciples who are panicking. And what comforts them? I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And you've come to me, therefore you get to go to the Father. That's the, the extreme comfort. This is, there's no need for missions if John 14, 6 is not true. If there are other legitimate ways and other comparable truths, then just leave everybody how they are. And we shouldn't try to evangelize. We shouldn't try to call others into our church. It doesn't matter. There are other ways, and they can find out other ways. Now we're just capitalistically competing for dollars. But if he is the only way and the only truth and the only life, then we take the the, the frowns and we take the stones of the culture because we love them. We know the way and there is only one. And he says, all who come to me, I will in no way cast out. That's who the way is. That's how he speaks. Jesus declares this truth to comfort his troubled disciples and it should comfort us too. In a, ground, in a world that is shifting sands and we never know who is actually telling us the truth, we have more information that we've ever had as humans on the planet, and yet we can believe nothing more confidently than we ever have before. But Christ says, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We aren't buying insurance or electricity. Well, there, maybe there's a better option out there. No, there is one, only one option. Only one option to turn the lights on. Only one option to secure your life. And that one chose us before the foundation of the world. What love and what peace that gives to us like it does to the disciples in this moment. Because the fear of his departure can now be abated. Jesus is the road to heaven. There's no road that we follow. He is the road. And he's the source of the truth and the spring of our life. And if we're in him, then that's what we have. A disciple's desire is for Jesus, for him, to be with him. And Jesus doesn't rebuke that in his disciples here. Not even, not even a hint. Your desires are right, but your maturity is lacking. He just expounds further on it. So just like we don't get mad at our kids when they cry when we leave them, we just want to teach them, no, I'm going to come back. I'm going to always come back. You will always be with me. You will always have a room in my house. And if I'm leaving you now, it's for your good. And when I come back, you will come back to what's better in our house, in our relationship as a family. So if we do that with our children, then we must believe the same about God to us, Christ to his disciples including us, and we believe he will take us to heaven because he's the only one who can, and he's the only one in whom we trust. And he wants 
to be with us. What an unfathomable love. Let me pray. Father, we look at this passage and we are like the disciples. We are Peter. We are Thomas. We miss what things that you have said so plainly and so obviously. We let panic and urgency blind our minds and cloud our judgment. <clears throat> and in our prideful moments, we overestimate the strength of our flesh to stand up for you and to, to be publicly devoted for you. May we learn from our older brothers in the faith. May we learn directly from your son's words to them. And may we be overwhelmed. May we be smothered with the, the outpouring of love that your son Jesus shows to these men in this, this time. He's not panicking about his own death. He's not panicking about the betrayal, about the, the marching hordes of soldiers that will come get him shortly in the garden. He's just focused on his frail, on his weak disciples that he loves. He knows the stupid questions that they're going to ask. He knows the pain of what's going to look like to turn around in that garden and watch them all run away from him. And then to hear, to lock eyes with Peter across the courtyard and watch him, hear him deny that he even knows him. And yet, knowing all of that, he cares for them in this moment and he shepherds them. He strengthens them and encourages them. He cares more about their distress than he does about his imminent death. May we be overwhelmed by that. May we never get beyond this. May we in all of our anxiety take the heed to the words to believe in you and to believe in your son. And may we be comforted by that when we need comfort and the, the days increase where we seek more and more comfort from you. May we not find it in, in the, the scrapping that we can do, the planning, the preparing, the, the advocating, the protesting, but we would take the comfort in the same place you told your disciples to take it in you. Your son as fully God your spirit as fully God and you as all triune God of the universe. May we find comfort in you every day for our every anxiety and every fear. Thank you for comforting us. Thank you for explaining so clearly the exclusivity of the gospel. Thank you for equipping us to send us out to bring others in to that same exclusive blessing because we can hear the very promise that all who come to you will never be cast out and the weary and heavy laden that come will receive rest. When we rest in that, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.